Hi there. Welcome to Next Creator Up. My name is Aaron Prudell. Each week I speak with an emerging or established creator in one of numerous fields to explore their heart, mind, work, and process. Wherever you are in your creative journey, you'll get a number of tips and insights to help you get past your blocks and bring your ideas to life. Hey creators, before we get started, just a quick note. You can receive updates for the show, as well as special offers and exclusive content, including unaired lightning round Q&A by joining Creative Lightning. It's a free newsletter full of little inspirational nuggets that could help you bring your ideas to life. Learn more and sign up at nextcreatorup.com slash creativelightning. Jeff Heimbach is a creative jack of all trades. He's a writer, filmmaker, and podcast creator. You can find his writing all over and in many mediums, but he has a particular passion for horror and writes for horrorbuzz.com. He created the popular serialized audio drama Return Home, which follows a man who returns to his hometown to unravel its mysteries after an unknown entity calls to him. Done in the style of radio shows of ages past, Return Home has won several audio drama awards including Best Actor in an Original Leading Role, Best Theme Music, Best Supporting Actor, and Best Supporting Actress. In this episode, we discuss his process for producing his Return Home podcast, as well as his book about the Disney Imagineer rebel, Rolly Crump, including his most important lesson learned from Rolly, who was a pioneer behind such iconic attractions as It's a Small World, The Enchanted Tiki Room, and The Haunted Mansion. If you are a fellow fan of Disney and a podcast lover, especially audio narratives, this episode is not to miss. I hope you enjoy this interview as much as I did. Without further ado, please welcome our next creator up, Jeff Heimbuck. Jeff, how are you doing? I'm good. How are you? Doing great. Thank you so much for coming on the show. I'm very excited to uh, to speak with you. Uh, I, I know from doing the research that we've got a great deal in common, and uh, I'm really excited to uh, to chat. So thanks so much for coming on. Thank you very much for having me because I have been a fan of the website for many, many years. So this is a delight for me. <laughs> oh, awesome. Uh, that's great. Um, but so before we dive into the particulars of some of your projects, uh, I think a great place to start is with the idea of focus and productivity. Mm-hmm. When doing research for our interview, I came across your about page on your personal website and you stated that you usually have 15 projects going on at once. Uh, I know from my personal experience that I've often not been able to serve two masters and keep up the same level of output and quality if I've had competing projects. So I'm curious in what ways you've struggled or perhaps even thrived by having multiple projects going at one time, competing for your energy and attention. How does it affect you? Um, It is, I'll be honest with you, it's kind of a nightmare. Um, But it's a self-induced nightmare, so I have no one to blame for it but myself, obviously. Um, I am the type of person where I have a difficult time sitting still. And I mean that both figuratively and literally. Um, I'm literally playing with like a fidget spinner right now because I always have to be doing something with my hands. Um, And it's a terrible habit. But usually I find when I'm working on a project, whatever it may be, I love doing it. But then I also get an idea for something else and then an idea for something else and then something else. And I don't like sitting on ideas, so I always like to jump right into it right away. Um, sometimes that is not great, and you know my family and friends get annoyed by it, unfortunately. Um, but uh, I I try to balance them as best I can. Uh, for example, I'll I'll just bring it up right away. The Return Home podcast right now. Uh, I've been doing it for three and a half years, um, and I started it 
When I came up with the idea, I said to myself, I'm going to wait till I'm done with my other podcasts first. I had about seven months left of the other podcast. And I got to about six months and I said, I can't wait. I got to do this now. <laughs> so um, the other podcast was a theme park history podcast that I did every single week. And it was a lot of research. So adding a full-blown audio production uh, onto that, in addition to writing, recording, editing, a very history-intensive podcast um, was a lot, but for me, creatively satisfying. Even though I had, you know, a family also to attend to, a full-time job, other, uh, you know, duties as well. Um, so it's, it's, you know, sometimes difficult to find that balance of like how much time goes to each project. Um, I don't even think there's a clear solution for that kind of thing because I still struggle with it to this day. But I find myself the most creatively satisfied when I am working on multiple things uh, at once. That makes sense. Do you find that having the different projects, maybe one fuels the other or, you know, helps you find ideas or completes part of the other project? Uh, yeah, absolutely. In, in, even indirectly. Um, I mean, I, I like to write a lot and I don't get to write when I'm editing something. So I'm finding that I, I can get that outlet elsewhere uh, while still working on the thing I'm supposed to be working on, I think is a huge help for me. Makes sense. Uh, and I, I we touched on a little, but I'm always interested about when and how other people, you know, get their moments of insight or flashes of creativity. So how did your serialized comedy horror podcast return home, you know, come to be? Do you remember that that moment, that flash of insight? Uh, yeah, it, it originally started. Uh, well, I went I went to school for film production, so it started obviously as a a, a visual thing uh, at first, and I had the idea kicking around in my head for a while. Um, you know, I'm originally from New Jersey, and I moved out to California. And, uh, you know, when I went home back to New Jersey for the first time to visit family, I, I had not been home, like physically home in a handful, two, three years. And I was struck by like how different everything was uh, to me uh, from what I remembered it to be. And that kind of spurred that idea a little bit more. But the more I thought about the idea, the more I thought, I can't pull this off. I don't have the money or the time or the resources to really do this. What's another way to tell this story? Um, I thought about writing it as a, a novel or, you know, a short story or something. And I started to, and it still wasn't doing it for me. Um, but at the time, I was working for Chapman University. And one of my coworkers uh, wrote and created a very popular audio drama podcast called We're Alive. It's a, it's a zombie podcast. Mm -hmm. And he did it for seven or eight years. And I, I was a fan of it before I even met him. So it was cool to, like, when I, when I realized I was working with this person. But... Listening to that, I was like, why can't Return Home be a, a podcast? Why, why can't I do that? You know, I can record the actors separately. I can make it all to come together in editing myself. I have like full control over everything. I'm going to give it a try. Um, so I did a test pilot episode where it was just me talking, which eventually became the very first episode of the series, just to see if I can pull it off. And it worked. And I was like, I'm, I'm going to go right ahead and, and try this and jump into it. And you know, now it's been year three and I can't stop. <laughs> so every project has a moment where you have to make a difficult creative decision. What comes to mind for Return Home? What, what was the thought process behind making the decision that you ultimately did? Um, I think 
I think the biggest thing, and this is something I learned very early on in my writing career, um, and has the worst name, but it makes a lot of sense. It's called kill your babies. And that means, you know, don't be afraid to get rid of the things, even though you have a strong emotional attachment to something you may have written. Sometimes it does the story better to get rid of it than to keep it. Um, and because Return Home is a very, it's influenced a lot by loss. So there's a lot of you know, heavy story beats and mythology about around it where, you know, something that's mentioned here is paid off a year later in some way. A lot of stuff like that. So in creating the show, I came up with a lot of stuff that would fit into that mold. And there was a lot of really good story beats that I wanted to include, um, especially during the first season that we were doing, that ultimately, even though it hurt my heart so much, I had to get rid of it. Uh, so that kind of stuff was like the hardest part of the process for me, trying to figure out what actually worked in the story as opposed to me just throwing everything at a wall and hoping it stuck <laughs> right now that makes sense and this may be a horrible follow-up question just because of how i'm gonna phrase it but what was the hardest baby to kill um i first of all as a horror person great question loved your <laughs> phrasing um and i guess I can't really say for people who listen, who happen to listen to the podcast that may listen to this because some of those beats, the, the one that I was most upset about in the first season or two is actually coming back around this year. Um, there is an episode that's coming out. It's episode 28, which is a story that I've wanted to tell on this podcast since the beginning. And it's finally, I found a way to make it happen. It's, it was the right time for it. So that, that was the hardest baby to kill. But I brought it back to life. So I guess it's okay. No, that's totally okay. That is that's a unique horror idea. That's a baby rebirth. Like, yes, I don't even know how that works, but that that's intense. Uh, I watched Reanimator a lot, so I learned a little bit from Herbert West how to how to bring that back. <laughs> so, what does the production process look like for Return Home? Can you walk us through what the writing process and recording process looks like? Yeah, uh, so I usually start with a, a outline of the entire season from start to finish, the major story beats of what I want it to be. And then I probably spend a good six to nine months staring at that outline agonizing before I actually write anything, <laughs> which I think is the case for, for most writers. Um, and, you know, I, I, I start writing the episodes. I usually write them out of order um, and I have to go back and change things. So the writing process usually takes anywhere from two to three months. Uh, I used to do it all by myself. Now I have two other writers, three other writers that actually um, write episodes as well. Uh, so, you know, I, I make the outline, I send it out to them and I go, if anything jumps out that you want to write, feel free to snag it. If you have your own ideas, let me know. Let's see if we can fit it in. Um, and then once all the episodes are written, uh, and then it's a matter of scheduling all the actors. Uh, for the most part, all my lead actors, I essentially do all their recording for the season in one go. We'll spend a day just recording all of their dialogue. And, you know, when you're watching a movie or a TV show and you see the actors on screen, they are responding to each other. They're acting off of each other. Uh, my actors don't get a chance to do that usually because I'm recording them by themselves. Uh, so I become their other actor, even though I am unseen or unheard in the process when they're, you know, doing their thing. So, uh, you know, sometimes it takes a while to, for actors to get used to, but uh, everyone that's been on the show so far has gotten very used to it in the four years we've been recording. And they're all really, really good um, at taking direction. So that helps nicely. Um, and then once I have all the voices, you know, then it's another two months of agonizing about all the editing I have to do before I actually get into the editing. Um 
And then each episode that's every, every weekly episode that's released probably takes me anywhere to, I don't know, a day or two days, like literally 24 to 48 hours to actually edit everything down, put it together, mix all the pieces, uh, get the music done from my composer, Corey Celeste, um, many revision processes. Uh, It's, it's a long, long process. It's a lot of work, a lot more work than I thought it was going to be. But it's a very rewarding process to hear it all come together at the end. Absolutely. Uh, what has been the hardest episode to produce thus far? Um, that's a good question. Um, let me think about that. Okay. There is a Jersey Devil episode. Uh, I, I think it's episode seven where um, the, the show features a lot of narration where the lead character, Jonathan, you know, because it's an audio thing and not a visual thing, um, he he set, he narrates a lot of what's going on. Uh, the episode with the Jersey Devil, there's a whole scene where they're being chased by the Jersey Devil in a car. And doing the sound design on that particular scene, sound design in general is very challenging um, because that's not my forte. I kind of had to teach myself how to do it. But the sound design on that particular scene uh, took me... Uh, over a month to like really get to a point where I I liked it. Uh, it was it was very difficult. It was a lot of work. I hated every moment of it. And now that it's finally out there in the open, I'm like, oh, it's not that bad now. You know, years <laughs> years removed from it, I'm like, okay, it's it's pretty good. But I I hated it at the time, and it was it was very very hard for me to do. <laughs> it, it's fun. It's funny how uh, sometimes things are not quite uh, as bad as you think they are uh, while you're doing them when you later get to reflect on it. Yeah, it's it's amazing. Even like things that I still hate now, we get the most compliments on from people, and I'm like, why? What what is it about this that I hate that other people really enjoy? <laughs> uh, there's there's a good sense of gratification that even when it's not working out for you, it may be working out for someone else that's a fan of your work. Yeah, it's it's kind of incredible. There's one episode in particular last year that I thought, you know, I wrote it, so I'm allowed to say this wasn't the strongest writing wise. Um, and I, I'm still not the biggest fan of the episode, but it's one of the best ones that people like think about the most. It, it's kind of unbelievable. Yes. Uh, you know, I want to transition um, a little bit here because Return Home is a comedy horror genre, but you also have a deep love of horror generally as you write for Horror Buzz. That's right. Correct. Yes. Yes. So I myself am terrified of horror films. I, <laughs> I, pretty much all things horror. I'm that uh, rare person who has no problem swimming with actual sharks in the open ocean, but freaks out when I watch Jaws. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, the more unrealistic and supernatural it gets, the more it terrifies me. Uh, I, I'm terrified of vampires. It's tough for me to function in Halloween in Los Angeles with all the fun theme park things that happen. It really is. And that's the time I thrive. I right? love it. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, I'm curious as someone who is a super fan of horror if there was perhaps a first scare or a horror film, book, story, something that terrified you to your core, and, and if so, what about that experience do you find so enjoyable? And in some ways, do you find that you've been chasing that first scare since? Um, I will say absolutely chasing that first scare since. Um, and it's kind of kind of two, twofold. Um, it was a physical thing and also a movie. Um, the movie was uh, the original Halloween. Um, I love the entire Halloween franchise, no matter how off the wall or terrible some of the films get. Um, but watching the original Halloween as a kid, it, I don't know, struck something in me that terrified me and has stuck with me to this day. 
and um, Norm, who created Harbaugh's, we, we, we created it together. That is his favorite Halloween film as well. And I think that was one of the first things we bonded over, that it was our favorite our, our favorite thing of all time. Um, so yeah, that, that was the, really the first thing. And then growing up in New Jersey, uh, I used to go to Six Flags, Great Adventure, all the time. Mm. And every October, they had Fright Fest. Um, and this was years ago, before all the, the Six Flags and theme parks had like hor- horror mazes you can walk through now. Fright Fest back then was literally a haunted hayride that lasted 25 minutes and you know an occasional scare zone somewhere in the park. And I remember the first time I went to Fright Fest, I was probably seven or eight years old. And it just scared the bejesus out of me. And uh, I, I just never, I never forgot it. I hated it at the time. And we left, like I was crying in tears because I was so petrified and then wanting to go back so badly because I had so much fun. Oh, we had the exact opposite experience. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, to segue a little bit from horror to something that I just have to talk about, I'm a huge Disney fan as well. Um, I know you co-hosted the podcast largely about Disneyland. So my first question is, as a fellow big Disney fan, is what is your favorite ride? Um, hands down, it would. Okay, I, I'm going to cheat and say three because they all mean a lot to me. Um, it is obviously the Haunted Mansion is a very, very big one and influential in my life. Um, the Enchanted Tiki Room as well, I have a very big love of, and then also the uh, the People Mover at uh, Walt Disney World Magic Kingdom. Oh, nice. Very nice. Uh, All right. So my second question is, is there are a lot of big Disney fans out there, but not every fan writes books and creates a podcast about Disneyland. So what is it about Disney or what experience has compelled you to be a super fan? I think just, you know, I went a lot as a kid. I went to Walt Disney World all the time uh, growing up on the East Coast and, and Disneyland a handful of times too. And, you know, just being fascinated by the park itself and this world of magic and enchantment that you walked into. And then when I grew older and I realized, oh, you know, somebody, somebody had to make these things. Like somebody had to come up with these ideas and craft them and, and make this whatever this is. And I want to know more about whatever that person, you know, who that person is and what their motivation was. And, you know, at the time I started researching this stuff, there wasn't a whole heck of a lot out there yet. You know, the Internet was still fairly new. There were some message boards out there. And it really was over the years this community of fans came together and began to find out all these stories. And these people that made these things that we loved, you know, they were very accessible. They, they, you know, it was easy to find them. It was easy to talk to them. And a lot more research came out about it, a lot more uh, websites and blogs and books. Um, So that's kind of how I started just finding out these stories because I was fascinated by them. And then the more I read the more I wanted to know. And when there was something that wasn't out there, I went out to to find that information. Um, I started writing for a, a Disney site ages ago and, you know, was writing about the things that were interesting to me, you know, the stories of the cast members, um, how things were created, just every anything that really had an interest for me, I, I wanted to find out and, and write about. And, that, and that's basically how, you know, the writings and the podcasts and the books came about. Yeah, I wanted to talk a little bit about one of the books. It's uh, kind of a cute story. Uh, first off, can you tell us a little bit about the book and Raleigh Crump? Certainly. So uh, Raleigh Crump is basically, if I if you had to describe it, the bad boy of the original Disney uh, Imagineers. Um, <laughs> he did not play by the rules. Uh, he did whatever he wanted, and Walt Disney loved him for it. 
Um, and he, he was very innovative and influential in a lot of the classic Disney attractions, like the Haunted Mansion, the Enchanted Tiki Room. Obviously, uh, I use those two as my favorite examples before for a good reason. Um, it's a small world. A, a lot of that stuff, he had a very heavy hand in designing. Uh, and it, it, when I was growing up, I, I love very specific particular things about particular rides you know the haunted mansion wallpaper everything in the tiki room all that stuff and years later i found out oh they all have a common denominator it's roly crump um so when when i found out he he did some kind of like audio guide walking tour when i was writing for a disney website and i just happened to reach out to like say hey i would love to interview you about this um we had a scheduled chat for like 20 minutes that wound up going for over two hours. Uh, I was huddled in my then girlfriend, now fiance's closet at the time, using that as a makeshift recording studio. <laughs> um, and I, it was just a delight to talk to him. And I thought that was it. I'm never going to hear from him again. Um, and we just happened to keep in touch. And, you know, he was looking for someone to tell his story his way. And me being a huge fan of his work was, you know, a, a naive kid from New Jersey going, I'll tell your story. Like, what, what can I do? What, what, how can I convince you that I'm the person to tell this story? And, you know, three months later, I was on an airplane uh, flying out to San Diego to, to spend a week with him and his wife uh, and, and writing his book, writing his story. That's great. Was there a particular story of his that you really uh, resonated with or related to as far as your own creative journey? Um, I think just the aspect that he, 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 he didn't, he beat to, he, oh, sorry, let me rephrase that. He um, walked to the beat of his own drum. He, he did what he wanted to do because it interests him, which is what I do a lot of the time also. And the fact that he worked at this place at, at a time where creativity was encouraged um, is amazing to me. The, f the fact that, you know, yeah, there, were, there was obviously the original generation of Imagineers that helped make the park what it is when it first opened. And then Rolly comes along and has all these off the wall ideas. And Walt Disney's like, I like that. Let's do this. Let's do that. Yeah, I, I like what you're doing. Um, that to me is very endearing and very inspiring to me. Um, as for story, um, there there's one particular where uh, Walt Disney received a uh, a birthday gift of a rock, a painted rock with a curse word on it that Rolly made for him. That is my favorite story of all time, and like you know, it was Walt Disney's cherished gift for many many years. It sat on his desk for a very long time until his death. Um, something about giving a man you admire a rock that has a curse word on it is just very endearing to me. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I absolutely love that. And I'm very intrigued what that curse word is. C can I say it? Yeah, hundred percent. Oh, oh, the curse word was shit. Oh, what's <laughs> so you basically gave Walt Disney a pet rock and yes. he named it shit. Yes. It's, <laughs> it's, it's like a flat brownish rock and it has the word shit painted on it. And uh, he loved it. He absolutely loved it. And when we when we first were doing the book and he told me that story, and I, I had heard it before and I told him that was my favorite story. After I went home and I started writing, they uh, he, he sent me a gift in the mail where he, he sent me my very own shit rock that he made for me. That is <laughs> my prized possession. 
yeah i that that's that's such a great story i what i mean what do you give a a, a man like walt disney i mean that that's that stands out yeah a rock that says shit on it like that's <laughs> amazing <laughs> And um, that's what you think of when you think of Walt Disney. Like, no one would ever think, like, oh, yeah, he'd be into that. No, he loved it. Uh, it's, it's, it's right next to the pixie dust, I'm pretty sure. Oh, yes, absolutely. <laughs> so what is, what is something that you've learned from Rolly uh, and the writing of the book about creativity or the creative process that you've taken with you and applied to your work today? Rolly was a big proponent of you know, if he if he didn't know how to do something, uh, but he wanted to know, he would just do it. There there are a lot of instances where he was assigned something, or they were like, "Hey, do you know how to do this?" And he was like, "Sure," and flat out lying, and then he had to go out and learn how to do it. Um, that I absolutely love, and you know, a philosophy I've had even before I met Roly, but hearing him say it just justified it to me even more. The fact that these people that built this multi-billion dollar theme park industry now just went out and learned these things and, and did it. And, you know, now here they are 60, 70 years later and people are still enjoying them to this day. I, I think that's a, a very good way to live your life. You know, just learn the things that you are interested in and and do it. Even if not for anyone else, even for yourself, just just learn it and do it. Yeah, absolutely. Couldn't agree more. So aside from Disney, um, what have been some primary influences on you and your creativity? Um, definitely uh, movies. Uh, watched a lot of movies, horror and non, growing up. And just being fascinated by the storytelling process and, you know, creating things on, on screen. Um, I, I definitely think movies were a huge, huge influence on me, especially because I went to school to learn about filmmaking. So that, that's definitely probably the, the biggest there. <laughs> Have you found, uh, because like you said, um, Return Home was originally something you were conceiving uh, for film as a visual medium. Have you found it more freeing to utilize the audio format Um uh, obviously, there's a cost of production, but what 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 have you found about utilizing uh, the form, the podcast form, in comparison to film? As you've worked a lot with film as well, what what are the benefits as you find it? Uh, I feel as if it's it's better in the end to uh, cre create and craft the scene when it comes down to it. You know, when you're when you're watching a movie, and again, there's two actors on camera, uh, bo they both have to be at their top of their game to use a particular take. Whereas, um, you know, when doing this podcast, I can use, you know, take two of Alyssa and take seven of Forrest and put them together. Or even if like certain words, I can use the first half of the sentence from Forrest from take two and the second half of the sentence from take 18 because I just like the way they fit better. So being able to, you know, craft a scene, even if it's completely different than what it used to be on the page, after the fact in editing, I find to be, very freeing and very interesting because you can change things almost completely uh, during the editing process that you you don't really have that you don't have that luxury in in film editing maybe a little bit but I don't think as much as you do in just using the audio format. What advice would you offer to someone who wanted to be the next creator up as a narrative podcast producer? Uh, I really am a big proponent of uh, just 
just doing it. You know, don't don't get discouraged by anything that may pop up. Don't get discouraged by any of the hardships there are. Just go out and try to create the thing that you want to create because there's no wrong way to create it. You're you're the storyteller, you're the person behind it and whatever it is, it's going to be your vision. So don't get discouraged by anything or anyone else telling you otherwise. And I, and I say that with the air of someone that's been there before. <laughs> that, that's why I say that. Um, so one of our primary goals is to help share good creative work. So with this in mind, what is something that you think is especially shareworthy? Uh, it can be a book, a film, a TV show, an app, or some cool tool or product. Okay, so uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna say three things, uh, and they're kind of general and broad. My first will be the uh, the audio drama community in general is very shareworthy. Uh, these are people that are very passionate about telling their stories, whatever they may be, and they put a lot of time, blood, sweat, and tears into these passion projects. Um, in particular, just to point out a few of our friends, uh, Uncounty County, the Tunnels Podcast, Rose Drive. Um, they're all excellent, excellent shows. Um, they're very made by wonderful people as well. And they're definitely things I think people should check out. But audio drama in general, I think, is a great thing for people to listen to and share with their friends. Um, Book-wise, uh, my favorite book of all time is The Stand by Stephen King. Um, I know it is a 15,000-page uh, brick of a book that people may be <laughs> intimidated by, but... I definitely think it is a almost a masterclass in uh, crafting a story and having all the little pieces fit together. So I think that is definitely share worthy, even though you, um, I don't know, you probably need to work out to carry that book around all the time. Um, <laughs> and then third and final, I am going to say uh, the music of David Bowie. Um, it is a big part of my life. Uh, it it hey, plays a big part in you know, how I create, um, especially Return Home, uh, believe it or not. I don't think I've ever really publicly talked about this before, but every episode of Return Home is a David Bowie lyric. Because um, I started doing the show just after he passed away. And I guess it's just my own way of like paying tribute to him in some way. Um, so the, the music of David Bowie, I think, is very shareworthy. So for someone who has not yet listened to Return Home, your pilot episode, uh, your first episode, what is the David Bowie lyric so someone can make that connection? It, it's actually the, it's, it's called Home at Last, the episode. It's actually uh, pulled from the Labyrinth soundtrack. Nice. Which, I love that movie. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, and I'm curious, uh, the Stephen King book, what what in particular, as far as the masterclass for storytelling, what is one big insight that you pulled from it um, uh, when you first read it? Um, I think it's just how it's such a huge, sprawling story with like hundreds of characters that are all seemingly in con in uh, not connected at first. And then through the course of the book, how all of them weave together in some way, shape, or form. Like the first time I read it, I was like, where's this going? Like none of these seem to be connected in any way. And then it's like, oh my gosh, this is amazing. <laughs> <laughs> hey everybody, before we get into our lightning round, just a quick announcement. 
Did you know that we record additional lightning round questions with every guest who comes on the show? It's unaired and exclusive for our Creative Lightning newsletter subscribers. These quick Q&As were designed to elicit actionable insights to help spark your imagination and propel you beyond your creative blocks. We uncover favorite resources and books and tackle issues relevant to all creators such as how do you stay motivated when it's hard? How do you generate your best ideas? How do you know when an idea is the right idea? What do you do when you are creatively blocked? To get our guests' answers to these questions and more, join the free email list at nextcreatorup.com slash creativelightning. And now, on with the lightning round. What's the most important part of your creative routine? Uh, oh, man. I'm going to go back to the agonizing. I think that is the most... It sounds ridiculous, but I think that is the most creative part for me because the more I sit and stare at something and I hate it, I almost will myself to make it better. And I wind up changing, you know, a million different things before I actually sit down to start the creation process. Um, so to me, that is the most important part of my process. How do you know when an idea is the right idea? Uh, I don't think you do. I think you really don't know until you try it. And then even when you're three years into it, it still may not have been the right idea, but you're enjoying yourself. So who cares if it's right or wrong? <laughs> What's something you do to ignite your creativity? Uh, listen to a lot of music. Um, th this is strange, but there is this immersive experience here in LA called Alone. And um, aside from their weird experiences that they do in person, they all also have incredible soundscapes. And I made friends with the guys that have uh, that create it. And I have a lot of the music they've used in their events. And for whatever reason, that music gets me into... A, uh, a headspace to be when I need to like create or write or something. Very cool. What what is a what is a soundscape? Um, I don't even know how to. Exp I guess it's almost like ambient noise, but not like there's a purpose behind it. It's not random. It's like carefully crafted. Um, they have stuff where it's like almost like walking on a city street, but like set to their music as well. I, I don't even know how to explain it. It's, it's super bizarre, but they do an excellent job with it. Sounds really cool. When the going gets tough, I... Uh, cry in a corner for a few hours, and then I regroup and I come back and I figure it out. What's your favorite corner? Um, <laughs> there actually, there's one I'm close to right now in my living room. I have a lot of books. I have these two bookshelves that intersect in the corner of my living room here that uh, it's just filled with things I love around me. So that's probably my favorite corner. Oh, the good news is it's a little consoling if you've got a lot of your favorite things in that corner. Yes, exactly. I can pick a book Great up. I can corner. just get lost in it. I love it. <laughs> good corner to go to. I get my best ideas when? Um, I get my best ideas when I least expect it. Um, usually in the middle, at the most inopportune times as well. Uh, when I'm in the middle of something else and I have to somehow find a way to write it down or remember it or record a voice memo so I can go back to it later on. I'm inspired by? I'm inspired by uh, other people's creative energies, their creative endeavors. It, it For some reason, it just always like really hypes me up to see other people doing what they love just because they want to do something that they love. That I think that to me is super inspiring. When I'm hard on myself about my work, I remind myself that it probably could be worse. 
That sounds like someone who's had 15 projects going at once. That is indeed correct. (laughs) I needed to learn this in order to be where I am today. Um, I needed to learn everything, essentially. Um, You know, I had to learn how to do sound mixing. I had to learn how to edit uh, films digitally and both analog. I had to learn how to use equipment. Um, I, I had to learn the things I wanted to learn in order to be where I am, essentially. Do you believe in being creatively blocked? Uh, yeah. I, I, I feel like I get that way uh, often, and it's very discouraging. Um, and uh, I, I think it's something that everyone that's creative has to overcome at some point in their lives, whether it's a big thing or a small thing. But yeah, I absolutely believe that's a thing that happens, and it's terrible. Do you have a go-to method for diminishing the amount of time it takes to recover from said block or uh, any any sort of way of coping? Um, it usually comes back to the music. You know, I'll throw on the alone stuff. I'll throw on some David Bowie and sit down and force myself to do whatever it is I'm supposed to be doing. And even if it's terrible at first, uh, even if it's terrible for days, I find myself getting back into that groove and then eventually the block goes away and I can do that thing again. Jeff, thank you so much uh, for taking the time for coming on the show. Uh, I I had a blast. Um, I definitely, I feel like we can do, uh, I mean, you did it, but I feel like we (laughs) could do it uh, and literally talk uh, an entire show about Disney. Oh, we absolutely could. We could (laughs) do it for five years. We could. Yeah, you you had a sixth year in you, I'm pretty sure, and, and, and we can explore that at least on uh, one more episode uh, uh, down the line here. Uh, but thank you so much for taking the time for being a part of the show. Uh, how how could people learn more about you and what you're working on? Where should they go? Uh, you can find me all over the internet. I'm very much out there. Uh, you, I'm uh, at Jeff Heimbuck on pretty much every social media platform. Um, you can find Return Home on uh, the iTunes store, any podcast store. Um, we're on Twitter at Return Home Show. Um, and, I, you know, I'm, I'm, I think I'm jeffheimbuck.com is still um, a thing that's out there. Either jeffheimbuck.com or bamforproductions.com, my production company, is where you can find me. So, uh, <clears throat> Jeff, thanks again so much for coming on the show, for being a part of the show. Uh, I really appreciate it. Thank you very much for having me. I really appreciate it. It was really great talking to you. Thanks so much for listening. If you're enjoying the show, the best way to support us is by leaving a review on iTunes. This helps us reach a wider audience, which enables us to attract more interesting and inspiring guests for future episodes. And if you want to learn more about today's guests and to find the links and resources we discussed, check out our show notes at nextcreatorup.com and click on the link for this episode.